listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. The Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. This is one of the instances where I like the translation in the New International Version, excuse me, ESV enthusiasts. The translation in the New International Version really drives it home. It means eternally condemned. Let him be eternally condemned. That's what accursed means. As we have said before, now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed, eternally condemned. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. False gospels, they're out there. False teaching, it's out there. Way back in the book of Galatians, nearly 2,000 years ago, Paul is warning us about false gospels, in fact, presented by seemingly credible messengers. Even if I, the apostle Paul says, even if I come and preach to you a gospel different than the one you believe, let me be eternally condemned. He's speaking with tremendous passion, and he doesn't stop there. He says, even if an angel from heaven, a seemingly significant messenger comes and preaches a gospel different than the one that you received, let him be eternally separate from the presence of God, accursed. That's significant that Paul is laying down the law, literally speaking, laying down, explaining for us with absolute clarity that there is one gospel centered upon one Jesus. There are many Christ's out there, but there is only one true Jesus. And we're going to look at that today and get a better understanding today. So Paul is warning us. There are false gospels. There are people who believe in false gospels. Joseph Smith, September 1st, 1823, had the first of what he said were repeated visions from an angel named Moroni. Now, I think there's a better way to pronounce the name. The Mormons wouldn't want to pronounce it this way. They say his name is pronounced Moroni. I would say Morani is probably more appropriate. And what this angel Moroni, I would say Morani, supposedly revealed to Joseph Smith was a different gospel. Golden tablets that came out of the sky and Joseph Smith wrote them down because it was revelation from God. And what did that contain? A message of salvation that Christ died for the forgiveness of all sins, got off on a good foot, and the way someone's sins are forgiven is by observing the law and the ordinances in the Gospels. Eh, close, but no cigar. Christ died for the forgiveness of sins, but it's by grace, through faith alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift 
of God so that no one may boast. Interestingly enough, the Mormons also believe that this, the Bible was corrupted. And here's a problem with this thinking, with this teaching. If the Bible was corrupted and therefore you need the Book of Mormon, which is the additional revelation of Jesus Christ, if that's the case, if the gospel was corrupted and the way to be forgiven of all your sins and have the assurance of heaven is by obeying the Bible, well, how can you obey the Bible if you don't know whether or not what's in there is still accurate and true, if it's been changed? How can you do that? Talk about complexity. See, the Mormons believe in a different gospel. And even though it's presented with this angelic creature supposedly having revealed it, in the book of Galatians, we're warned. It doesn't matter who the supposed messenger is. What matters is the content. What matters is whether or not it jives with the message of salvation by grace through faith that it is the gift of God, that you cannot work your way into heaven. See, there are other false gospels out there. A rich person believes that they can give money to the church, give money to charity, and that's gonna earn them favor with God. No, it doesn't. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. People think that they're going to get into heaven because they've come to church, they've been baptized, and that's what gets them into heaven. That's what secures them a seat, a front row seat. That's a false gospel. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by the grace given to us by Jesus Christ. You know, the Mormons also don't believe in original sin. They believe that a child begins to sin or can begin to sin at the age of eight. However, when we read the book of Romans in chapter five, verse 12, it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, because all sinned. It's a different gospel that the Mormons believe. In addition to this, look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. It's not only false gospels out there, but there are false Christs out there. And you need to pay attention. You need to be on the alert for false gospels and false Christs. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, the apostle Paul writing, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, the apostle Paul giving credence to the Genesis account, that there really was a woman named Eve in a garden called Eden. And there really was a creature, a serpent who came and told her that she could eat the fruit that God said she should not eat. Paul is giving credence and credibility to the biblical account here. It's true. And he says, for I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Verse four, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Paul is criticizing the Corinthians because they were willing to accept a different Jesus. Never compromise on the real deal. Never compromise on the truth of the gospel that's presented in the Bible. 
the truth of Jesus and the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus, which is presented in this book, the Bible, 66 books, dozens of authors, hundreds of years, coherent themes. It's such a book that you couldn't write if you would. You wouldn't write if you could. There's no book like the Bible. It's convenient to say one person wrote everything that we need to know about God, whether it's Joseph Smith or somebody else. That's convenient to say that they have been given revelation by God. There's no ability to, con- to confirm one way or the other whether or not it's true or whether it's false. But when you have 66 books like the Bible written over hundreds of years by dozens of authors and it makes sense, you can't make that stuff up. To have this message of salvation foreshadowed in the Old Testament and then fulfilled in the New Testament and to have it fit like hand in glove with that type of seamlessness, we can say that the Bible is such a book man wouldn't write if he could and could not write if he would. There is no book like this Bible. Be careful about getting your understanding of Jesus, getting your understanding of the gospel from somebody else. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, believe that Jesus is a God, not that he is the God. So when we get to the Gospel of John and we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and then in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and lived among us, the whole point that John is driving at is that Jesus is God, not a God. That's anticlimactic. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was one of the gods. Big stinking deal. The whole point that John's driving at in John chapter 1 is that Jesus is God. That's the whole point. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is God, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Jesus is Lord. That's the word that's used there, used of God. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is God, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what's presented in the Bible. Beware of different gospels. Beware of different Christs. They are out there. Let's look at Luke chapter 12. As we continue in our series through the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 12 in verse 49, because this passage of scripture, when we look at it, is one of those passages that reminds us that the Jesus we might gravitate toward The 21st century American understanding of Jesus doesn't necessarily jive with the scriptures. See, Jesus today has been made politically correct. Jesus has been made today to be somebody, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, the Bible tells us that Jesus loves you, but Jesus also hates sin. Jesus also is very impassioned about hypocrisy. Jesus is very serious about the things that you and I should be serious about. And how do we get that understanding? You won't get it from watching television. You won't get it from listening to the radio or even most of the time surfing the internet. You're going to get the correct understanding of Jesus. You're going to get the correct understanding of the true Jesus from the Bible. You're going to get the understanding of the true gospel from the Bible. Be careful or you will allow yourself to be deceived. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, Jesus said. Speaking to a crowd of thousands upon thousands, Jesus says, I have come. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. 
Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. What Jesus are you talking about? That doesn't sound like the kumbaya Jesus that we hear about today. Do you think I've come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Some of you say, that's nothing new in my household. He also said to the crowds, this is not just to the Pharisees and the scribes, to the crowds, not to the disciples, but to the dabblers. When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you people who should be able to recognize what's right before you. That's understanding of a hypocrite. Remember, our 21st century understanding of what a hypocrite is is not the complete picture of what a hypocrite is as defined in the Bible. It's not just a false player. That's not the biblical understanding of a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody who knows better, who should know better, and has nothing to draw from within themselves when they should. These people in the nation of Israel are seeing the Messiah right before their very eyes, and they are not able to recognize him. That's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. They should have been able to recognize Jesus for who he was. Look what he says. Verse 56, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? And you go with your, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus means what he says, says what he means. Jesus is no wimp. He's not interested in being politically correct. He's not interested in having an audience at the expense of truth. Jesus first and foremost, stands for truth. He lays it down. And the problem is that these people, these hypocrites that Jesus calls them, should have been able to recognize very clearly that the Messiah of Israel had come in their midst, was standing right before their very eyes, and they're missing him. And Jesus says, you know when the clouds arise that it's going to rain. You know that when the wind blows, something's going to happen in the weather. Jesus says, how can you not recognize the times? How can you not recognize with all the things that I've been saying? Here we are at the midway point in Luke's gospel. How can you not recognize with all the miraculous signs and wonders that you're seeing? How are you so naive to be able to not interpret the times which you're living in? How can you not see what's right before you? See, in verse 40, Jesus says, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus was not just referring to the future time of his return. He was talking about right there and right then. The Son of Man is right here. He is coming at a time when you haven't expected him. How can you not recognize it? Because the, the coming of this Messiah was supposed to be accompanied with miraculous signs and wonders. One of the reasons why The Antichrist will deceive so many because he will produce counterfeit signs and wonders. People will go after and follow him. Be deceived. 
again. Now, it's interesting what Jesus says here. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. John chapter 9, verse 39. John chapter 9, verse 39. What does Jesus mean? I came to cast fire on the earth. Look at John chapter 9, 39. The Bible interpreting itself as it always does helps us get insight. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. That's the idea that Jesus is presenting here. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Would that it was already kindled. This is the idea of purification, removal of sin from this earth, which one day we look forward to. One day we look forward to the removal of all sin, all difficulty, all hardship, judgment coming. There is a day of judgment coming. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a great white throne judgment for those who don't believe in Jesus Christ that happens in the book of Revelation. There is a day coming when everybody, great and small, rich and poor, famous and infamous, everybody will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account. That day is coming. Would that it was already kindled. I wish that that everything was culminated already. Do you know anybody who suffers with a physical ailment and looks forward to having a new body, a resurrection body? You know anybody who looks forward to that? You know anybody who looks forward to not having to work 50, 60 hours a week, two income families? You know anybody? You know anybody who's looking forward to that? You know anybody who's tired and fed up with the difficulties and the hardships, the relational issues that this life just seems to put on our backs one after the other? Of course, we're all looking forward to the redemption of all things. Get me out of this place. Can I get an amen for that? Jesus is the first one who's frustrated with this planet, but he knew why he was coming. And this is the real Jesus, not the counterfeit Jesus. Look with me at Exodus chapter 20, the second of the Ten Commandments. Look with me at Exodus chapter 20, the second of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. No idolatry, no making something that you're then going to do this in verse 5. You shall not bow down to them. The idea of bowing down and worshiping the thing that you've made with your hands. In Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, if you read that for yourself, you'll see that people give up a knowledge of God and begin to worship the created thing rather than the creator who's to be forever praised. It's idolatry, forbidden, the second commandment. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. This is the God of the Bible. Our understanding of God needs to conform to what the Bible teaches, and you've got to be careful that your understanding of Jesus comes from the Bible, not from some slickly presented television program, not from a radio broadcast or somebody who's sitting in their, their pajamas or maybe even less than that, eating potato chips, blogging about Jesus. What you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. I say that repeatedly and continually because everything that you do, everything you don't do is an overflow of what you really believe about God. And so the best way to change your behavior 
is to fixate on the one who changes who we really are. As your mind begins to get a true understanding of the true Jesus and the true gospel, as you come into alignment with the teaching of God's word, as you let this book, the Bible, teach you and instruct you about who Jesus is, not who other people say he is, but about who he really is, your thinking about God will change. And once your thinking about God begins to change, your behavior toward people begins to change. Your attitude toward how you're going through life begins to change. See, it really is all about the overflow. As a man thinks, so he is. What you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. You've got to make sure that you know the true gospel as presented in God's word, the Bible. You've got to make sure that you understand and recognize the true Jesus, because there are many Jesuses out there, but the true Jesus is the one as presented in the Bible. And this Jesus is not afraid to throw down the gauntlet. He's not afraid to speak the truth. He's not afraid to confront people because the ultimate purpose of Jesus was not to provide a life of greater comfort and greater convenience. Listen to this. The ultimate purpose of Jesus is not to provide a life of greater comfort and convenience. Listen, the ultimate purpose of Jesus is not to provide a life of greater comfort and convenience, the purpose of Jesus is to reset your entire life so that it revolves around the biblical Jesus. That's the purpose of why he came. The purpose of Jesus is that everything about your life would revolve around the living and true God, who he is. Now, don't get me wrong. Following Jesus... Surrendering to Jesus puts you on God's side, the winning side, enables you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death for you will fear no evil. It doesn't change necessarily the circumstances in life, but it definitely changes how you handle the circumstances in life. And watch this. In life, you're going to have problems, okay? I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there's good news here. You're going to have problems in life whether you follow Jesus or whether you don't. You're going to have problems. You have problems now. Some of them are because you're following Jesus. Some of them are because you're not following Jesus. You live this side of glory and paradise, you're going to have problems. Welcome to the world. The question is, which set of problems would you like to have? Would you like to have the problems that come from surrender to God, where you're on God's side, he's on your side, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you'll fear no evil? Or would you like to have the kind of problems that come with resistance? Because resistance to God is futile. And you might be in a situation in your life where you don't know what to do. You don't know how to do it. You're beside yourself. The solution is very simple. Get on your knees. Ask God to help you surrender. I have found that when I surrender to God, things fall into place. And you'll find that to be true too. God gives me clarity in my life. God gives me strength in the midst of a storm. God gives me hardship as somebody who nearly died four times, cancer survivor, dad threatened to kill me. Listen, I'm still standing here by the grace of Almighty God. Did God prevent me from going through all those things? No, in the sovereignty. Oh, I wish that the fire were already kindled. I look forward to that great day of redemption. In the meantime, 
God has shown me how to handle the storms of life and they're best handled on my knees. When we surrender to God, God has a way of putting everything in our lives in perspective and very quickly, listen to this, very quickly, God has a way of helping you, helping me, helping anyone who's sincerely surrendered understand areas of their life where they may be resisting God, which is futile. Nobody has ever surrendered to God and lived to regret it. Listen, you might say, I don't know if this Bible's totally the word of God. I'm not sure. You know what? You're not alone. A number of years ago, before he became famous, a man, you might have heard of his name, a man took a Bible out into the woods and put it on a tree stump and he prayed to God. He said, you know what? There are things in this book that I don't totally understand, I don't totally grasp, but by faith, I'm going to accept it as your word. And he accepted the Bible in its entirety from Genesis to Revelation as the divinely revealed word of God, the inspired word of God. And then God began to do especially significant things in his life. There were two other men apart from this man, who I'm going to tell you who it is in a moment. There were two other men who were more gifted as preachers than this man. One of them went on to be a radio host. The other one went on to be an alcoholic because they wavered from their faith and acceptance of the Bible being God's word. But Billy Graham went on to be a man of international influence by the hand of God because he was the one who laid the Bible on the stump and by faith accepted it from Genesis to Revelation as the divinely revealed word of God. He let this book change his thinking and because of that, God through Billy Graham changed the world. And that's what's gonna happen in your life too. You don't think there are things in this Bible that I look at, raise my eyebrows over, take my glasses over, scratch my head, but I persist in reading it because I know that the Bible interprets itself. And if I persist in reading it, I will get understanding. I will let the Bible be a commentary on itself. And what at one point seemed confusing to me, eventually God sheds his light and provides great insight. Do not quit on this book prematurely. Don't quit on this book. Back to Jesus' words here. As he speaks with passion in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Interesting choice of words. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Want to look at this word baptism and this word distress. Baptism and distress. Jesus using terminology. We know that he's not talking about Luke chapter three where he was baptized in water by John the Baptist. So he's not talking about H2O. He's not talking about water. He's not looking forward to being baptized in water because that already happened in chapter three. We know that he's not talking about the spirit baptism because Jesus didn't need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. In fact, earlier in this chapter, Jesus warns about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is saying very clearly that the ability that he had to perform miracles was enabled by the Holy Spirit. So he's not talking about spirit baptism. This is the word that's used when something is immersed totally into something, all in. 
And Jesus is saying, I have an all-in endeavor, an immersion of my entire life into something, and it causes me tremendous distress because Jesus knew from the beginning that he was born to die. Jesus knew what was ahead of him, not just the cross, but personal rejection by people to be spat upon, to be beaten to a pulp where Pilate would look and laugh and say, behold, this quivering mass that maybe you could call a man. Jesus knew that that was coming because you were going to be purchased as a result of that. Jesus was baptized into that. It was coming. He knew that his immersion was coming, fully fledged, totally in, completely given over to the will of the Father because you were worth that. Because the Father's glory was worth what Jesus did. No, we're not worthy, but let no one say that Jesus died for junk. Let no one belittle what Jesus did on the cross, what Jesus did before the cross, what Jesus did for his entire life leading up to the cross. The punishment that brought us peace was upon his shoulders. He had a baptism to undergo, and it caused him tremendous distress. You've heard me talk about the hematidrosis and the blood pouring out of his pores because of the tremendous stress that Jesus was under in the Garden of Pressure, the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because he was totally selfless, totally living for the will of his Father, totally living for your benefit and for mine. He had a baptism to undergo. Everything in Jesus' life was pointing and marching toward the cross. And Jesus says, how I wish that was over. Causes me tremendous distress. This word distress, look with me at Acts chapter 18. It's the same word that's used here. In regard to the apostle Paul, when Silas, Acts chapter 18, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied. It's the same word that's used, totally given over with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. This Jesus, the biblical Jesus that's presented here, that word occupied is the same word that's used here in Luke chapter 12, verse 50. Distress. Occupied that type of being totally consumed, totally dedicated, totally given over. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls. Same word that's translated here in Luke 12 50 as distress, which translated here as controls. Well, why do we have two different words used? Because the context helps us understand the nuances, the flavors. Some of you have a translation that says compels us. For the love of Christ so utterly controls and compels and guides us because we have concluded this colon. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. Concluded, settled matter. Therefore, it sets my life in action. Look with me at Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. The word is used again. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. I am hard-pressed. Same word that's used. Distressed. Because Paul's dilemma here was, I want to be out of this world and in the presence of Jesus. You know anybody who wants to be out of this world and in the presence of Jesus? Paul can identify and then he realized that if he was out of this world and in the presence of Jesus, he wouldn't be able to preach the gospel and lead people to Christ and lead people to maturity and following him. So he had a predicament on his hands. Do I want to be out of this world and in the presence of Jesus or do I want to stay here and benefit people? And this is what he's saying here. I'm hard-pressed. I'm distressed. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Jesus is experiencing this kind of compulsion, this type of all-consuming dedication and focus to do what? 
to go to a place that you and I would never go, to do something that you and I would never allow to happen to ourselves. And even if we did, it wouldn't be sufficient because you can't die for yourself. We needed somebody perfect and flawless to willingly give his life. Jesus was not murdered. He gave his life as a ransom so that you could have life, so that I could have life. And you better believe that it caused Jesus a great deal of stress, a great deal of agony, a great deal of difficulty because it required the perpetual putting putting aside of his own desires. Jesus didn't have an agenda except the agenda of his father. Jesus didn't think of his own well-being. Do you understand that? Jesus did not consider his own well-being. He considered your well-being. That's why he endured the cross and its shame. That's why the punishment that brought us peace was upon his shoulders. Jesus was so highly motivated about that baptism, that total immersion, that total giving over of himself for his father and for you, that yes, it did cause him distress. Look what he says here. Verse 51 of Luke 12. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? See, many of us think that that's the purpose. If I follow Jesus, he'll just create peace in my life. No, there's a peace that surpasses understanding. Jesus appears to the disciples with the doors and the windows locked. In John's gospel, he says, shalom. A full, rich, deep, supernatural peace that the world can't give. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. That's what he means. Shalom. In the midst of everything you're going through, Jesus promises you a supernatural peace, but do not confuse following Jesus with order and acceptance by other people in your life. In fact, If you are really following Jesus, if you are really surrendered to Jesus, if you are really immersed in Jesus, if you're really preoccupied with Jesus, if you're really focused on Jesus, if you're really surrendered to Jesus, if you are really a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must have division in your life. It must come. The biblical Jesus promises us that. If you're really following hard after Jesus, and Jesus says, don't be confused, don't let yourself accept the politically correct Jesus, where everybody can do anything in their own idea that they want to, when actually what we've done is we've recreated Jesus in our own image. Going back to Exodus 20, we think it's terrible to take a rock or a stone or gold or something and fashion an idol and bow down and worship it, but why don't we take just as seriously this idea of sanitizing the biblical Jesus and taking words out of his mouth and putting words into his mouth? Many of us have recreated Jesus in our own image. He's not the biblical Jesus. It's not the biblical gospel. If you are really following Jesus, the biblical Jesus, the true Jesus, the one and only Jesus, your life has got to have some division in it. It will not all be smooth sailing Let me remind you, you will have difficulties if you don't follow Jesus, but those Jesus can't help you with. The only issues that Jesus can really help you with, the difficulties, are the ones that you're enduring for his sake and for his name. Jesus says, you think I've come to bring peace? 
No, I tell you, but rather division. Verse 52, from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. It's home for me because I came from a family of five. I have two brothers. My older brother got saved first, led me to Christ. I then led my younger brother to Christ. All of us evangelized to my mother, and she accepted Christ. And coming up on two years ago, in August, my father accepted Christ. But my parents were married for 32 years until my father sat down with my mother and said, listen, you're going to have to make a choice between this Jesus and me because I'm not going to let you follow this Jesus and stay married to me. And my mother paid a very high price for following Jesus because they were divorced One of the main reasons, primary reasons, is because my mother was becoming more Christ-like, being transformed, and at that time, my father wanted nothing to do with Jesus. A house divided as a direct result of surrendering to Jesus. Where is the problem in your life? Where are the problems in your life as a direct result of you being really baptized in Jesus? And I'm not talking about a pool of water. If you're really following Jesus, there's got to be hardship and difficulty as a direct result of following Jesus. Now, don't add subculture to Jesus. Christians have financial difficulties. Non-Christians have financial difficulties. You might not be having financial difficulties because it has anything to do with you following Jesus. People might not be particularly interested in hanging around with you because you might have halitosis. It's got nothing to do with Jesus. Go brush your teeth. Don't add things to Jesus that he's a right-wing, politically correct person or he's a right-wing conservative and that therefore that's Jesus. That's adding things onto Jesus that are baggage that have nothing to do with, with the gospel, have nothing to do with following Jesus. You want to get an understanding of the biblical Jesus? He's right here, and he wants fire to be kindled on the earth. He's baptized, totally given over, totally immersed to his Father will, Father's will, that you would have eternal life, that I would have eternal life, and Jesus is serious about redeeming you. Jesus is serious about obedience to the point of death. That's the biblical Jesus. Jesus is warning us that if you really get serious about him, the way he was serious about his father, the way he is serious about you, you cannot help but cause division, but let that division be for the cause of the true Jesus, not extraneous things you're adding on to it. Let yourself be a reason for division because you're adhering to the real gospel, not a false gospel. People are going to hate you whether you love Jesus. They're going to hate you whether you hate Jesus. You might as well make up your mind to be hated by the only people who really matter because you're following the true Jesus and adhering to the true gospel. Listen, you're not going to be liked by people You're not. You're not going to be able to appease everybody. People are going to look down their nose at you and hate you and despise you regardless of what you believe. So settle the issue and get over it. Get over it. Your objective in life is not to be popular. Your objective in life is 
to be surrendered to Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.